This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas in educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brem. Today, we talk about a television show that was hugely popular in Latin America called El Chavo de Ocho. Uh, El Chavo del Ocho was a Mexican TV show. It consists of a small group of adult actors, many of them acting as children who live in a Mexican vecindad, which is a lower class housing complex. And it's a really humorous show and it relies a lot on a mix of physical humor, double entendres, misinterpretation, uh, among numerous other comedic tropes. The show crossed borders across Latin America, taking on a multiplicity of meaning. My guests today, Danny Friedrich and Erica Comanaris, have a new edited collection that explores how the show worked and produced particular visions of Latin American childhood, schoolings, and societies. And one of the things that we try to do is we really wanted to figure out how is it that the show is working? And I think that's a different question. When you ask how something works versus what something means, that invites different you know, methodologies, different epistemologies and ontologies. So that's really, I think, the spirit of this, the new, the new series that's coming out with Bloomsbury. They also contend that their approach to studying El Chavo de Ocho is a new direction in comparative education research. It's not the same Chavo as I was watching when I was a kid, the one that I'm watching now with my kid. It's not only that I changed, but the ways of looking changed. So the thing itself changed. And I think that's something that is a different approach to um, a more traditional perspective that tries to seek an objective understanding of a stable object out there. Danny Friedrich is an associate professor of curriculum at Teachers College, Columbia University, where Erica Comanaris is a doctoral candidate in the curriculum and teaching department. Their new edited collection is entitled Resonances of El Chavo de Ocho in Latin American Childhood, Schooling, and Societies. It is the first book in the new Bloomsbury series, New Directions in Comparative and International Education. Danny Friedrich and Erica Comanaris, welcome to Fresh Ed. Thanks, Will. Thanks for having us. I'm really excited to talk to you. Thank you so much. We're really happy to be here. So both of you grew up watching this TV show that I actually never heard of. It's called uh, El Chavo del Ocho. Uh, and can you introduce this uh, television show, this Spanish-speaking television show, to the listeners? Sure. Uh, El Chavo del Ocho was a Mexican TV show. It was created by Mexican author, comedian, director, producer, actor Roberto Gomez Bolaños, who is also frequently known as Chespirito, which is a play on the Spanish pronunciation of Shakespeare. And the show actually consists of a small group of adult actors, many of them acting as children who live in a Mexican vecindad, which is a lower class housing complex. And the show centers around the main character and namesake, who's El Chavo, who himself is an orphan boy, and he spends a lot of time in the inner central courtyard of the vecindad with his fellow neighbors and friends. And it's a really humorous show, and it relies a lot on a mix of physical humor, double entendres, misinterpretation, uh, among numerous other comedic tropes. And there's a simplicity to this show that appeals to the youngest of audiences, but can engage older viewers through nostalgia and tenderness, for example. And when was this show on television? 
So that's a good question. Originally, El Chavo actually first appeared in 1971 as a sketch on a Mexican show called Chespirito, and it hit its peak of popularity in the mid-1970s and officially ending in 1980. But the show was actually so popular that they had to create an additional set of syndicated episodes that lasted all the way until 1992. So all in all, you could say that the show had about a 20-year run. Wow, that's incredible. And and how, I mean, what, what, where was this show produced? What country? And then how, how many countries did it reach in the Spanish-speaking world? Yeah, so it, that's, it had a trem- the show had a tremendous reach. It was actually originally produced in Mexico, but it, it re- its reach included all of Latin America and plus Brazil, Spain, and the United States. And it actually had an approximate audience of around 350 million people per episode across the Americas. And one of the things that we're actually grateful for uh, in this book project is that many of the scholars who joined us and wrote chapters for the book actually came from the numerous locations where El Chavo was watched. So, for example, Nicolás and Dani uh, from Argentina, where the show aired, Carlos from Colombia, myself from Venezuela, Ana Paula and Rita from Brazil, Vicky from Chile, Limaris, who's from Cuba, Puerto Rico and the United States, Dulce, Jose and Ernesto, who come from Mexico. Wait, so 350 million people watched each episode as it aired? Correct. According to the statistics that we came across. That's, un- I mean, that's unbelievable, given that, like, you know, say in, a, in, in the United States of America, a popular television show might have, like, maybe 20 million people watching it. Right, but here you're, you're thinking about a show that reaches every single country. And here's an experiment for the audience, right? I challenge the audience to find any Latin American person ages 5 to 50 mention El Chavo del Ocho and see what the reaction is. I don't think there's any person that's not going to have a reaction. The reactions are not going to be all the same, but every single person is going to have a reaction to this show. Right. So it's a very common household name for many Spanish-speaking people around the world. Absolutely. So what does the name actually mean? I, I don't speak Spanish, so El Chavo de, de Ocho, what does that actually mean? Yeah, so El Chavo is not actually a name, but Chavo is a term for lad. And we never actually find out what the character's real name is. And on the few occasions where the character is actually about to say it, he's usually always interrupted in some way. And so the characters of the show and the audience is always left with this kind of lingering mystery. And as for the the number, the number eight of his name, his name is El Chavo del Ocho, the show was originally broadcast in Mexico on Channel 8, hence the name El Chavo, the lad of Channel 8, del Ocho. But when the show actually moved to a new network, Televisa, and it was no longer on Channel 8, they, the, the show had to come up with a new reason for this seemingly random eight attached to the title. So in the syndicated episodes, they actually, El Chavo insists every now and again that he lives in apartment eight, although we never actually see him there or we never even see the apartment. So there's a lot of mystery. When we see El Chavo um, coming out of somewhere, he's usually out of the wine barrel where everyone supposes that he's living. He usually wakes up from naps coming out of a wine barrel. So even though he argues that he's from apartment eight, that is not never proven in the show. So 
both of you watched this growing up. I mean, do you have any favorite sketches that stick in your, your memory even as adults today? That's really a hard question because there's just so many of them that I have. Um, in fact, as I rewatched many of the episodes in preparation for the book, uh, I noticed I rewatched a lot of my favorite episodes, but I noticed that as an adult, a lot of my favorite episodes were very different from my episode, my favorite ones as a child. Uh, for example, growing up, any sketch that involved one of the characters whose name is La Chilindrina was really was my favorite because I loved her kind of sneaky, bossy, humorous ways. But now that I'm older, I'm really definitely more in love with the character of Don Ramon. So any of the sketches involving Don Ramon uh, are really my favorite. Yeah, for me, it's interesting because memory is a funny thing. And and like Erika says, the, the resonances the show has within our childhood and when we watch them as adults, as part of a research project, but also I watch them with my kid, they, they change. What they mean to me change and how I react to them change. But there's one episode that for me is, is very special. And I spent quite a bit of time on this in the chapter that I co-wrote with my friend Nicolas, um, which is this, the episode where... So most of the episodes take place in the vicinity, right? In this neighborhood. But there are uh, about 28 sketches that take place in school. And there's one episode in which the teacher has to leave and he leaves this very um, specific character in charge of the classroom. That is Don Ramon. Don Ramon is in the show, the poorest character, the one that everyone is always making fun of because he's always hungry, because he's always looking for a job. He never he can never hold a job. He always displays his ignorance on what everyone else knows. Uh, so in many ways, he's always the butt of the joke. But because of an emergency, the teacher has to leave. And Don Ramon, as he takes over the class, he starts to teach children things that are never taught in school, like the symbol for a poisonous bottle or what, what happens if you put your fingers in an electrical outlet. So things that for him are common sense, but that he and no one else learned in school. So when the teacher come, comes back expecting total chaos, he sees the kids completely engaged in this very unusual class and in very unusual pedagogy. So I, I found that episode fascinating. I loved it as a kid. I still love it now. And I think it, it shows so much potential for what the show does, for some of the problems in the show. So I, I still think that that is my favorite episode. So, I mean, let's, what does the show do, right? I mean, in a sense, it, it sounds like there is an educational component. And in, in, in your book, in your edited collection, you talk about it, in a sense, as a curriculum. So what, what does that actually mean? How is this TV show kind of a is educational, is part of a curriculum? Well, I think it's important to parse out the two. I actually don't think that the show is necessarily educational. Um, I do think you could argue that it is curricular in the sense that it does produce, the show produces visions of childhood and students and schooling and a sense of Latin American-ness, if there is such a thing. And of course, it produced history, but I wouldn't, I personally, I don't think it, it is necessarily educational. Yeah, I think it's important to distinguish this show from other shows such as Sesame Street, which have an intentional pedagogical task, right? They're trying to teach something very specific. In the case of this show, um, it's harder to know what the lessons are. And in this way, that's what we thought is very appealing of the show is how Latin American it is, how different it is from usual American shows based on schooling or 
on teenagers or on kids where um, they always have to come up with a lesson, with something that this is how we should live our lives. I think El Chavo complicates that in some ways, even though in some episodes they try to make morality clear. Um, the show's own cynicism, the, the show's own showcasing of certain ways of living that tend not to be showcased in American shows make it hard to be called educational. But like Erika said, I, I agree that it's, it is curriculum in the same way that much of pop culture is curriculum. In the way it produces relations of knowledge, it produces relations, it produces visions of the good life, it produces visions of childhood and many others. So what are some of those visions of the good life or the visions of childhood that uh, El Chavo shows or, or represents or depicts? I think that can be, it depends on who you ask. And that's one of, I think, the strengths of the book is that it really, depending on the author, um, some will say, will give very strong critiques of what it depicts, for example, in regards to childhood. We have a couple of authors, especially the ones from Mexico, that say that the show actually, for example, romanticizes poverty or kind of valorizes this notion of neoliberal mentality of individual will where, oh, if you just try hard enough, you can, you know, make it, uh, you can make it in life. Or if everyone would just get along, then we'll be able to, to achieve, you know, happiness or, or well-being. So a lot of, there's a lot of difference in opinion, I think, in regards to that. And I, that's one of the things that I feel this co collection of chapters helps to highlight. Yeah. And the collection does not aim to understand the deeper meaning of El Chavo. We're not trying to arrive at a consensus of what El Chavo means or what it does. I think we invited a very diverse a range of scholars from all over Latin America in order to understand different visions. So um, the chapter that I wrote, we think, for example, of what it means to, to situate a show about schooling in a school in which there is no progress, right? So if you think of other popular culture shows on schooling, they tend to follow the school calendar, especially when they're live action, right? Because they have to follow the, the growth of the actors. The seasons tends to start with the beginning of the school year, and they tend to end after testing and kids go on vacation because kids have to grow and they go from grade to grade. They reference previous learning. In this show, because the premise is that these are adults dressed as children, they don't have to account for growth. So we ask, and, and in, the, in the classroom, you see them always making the same mistakes, never learning, never moving. The show is filmed along two decades and they always have the same teacher. They're always in the same grade. In that sense, it's more similar maybe to animated shows such as The Simpsons or South Park. But I think there's something interesting to think about what does it mean to think of a schooling in which they discuss grades, they discuss passing or failing an exam, but that has no consequences because in the next episode, they go back to scratch. So it's, it, what does it say, tell us about Latin American schooling? In which ways does it serve as a metaphor or does it serve as a, as a tool for us to think about what does it mean to think about schooling in particular contexts? Um, so that's that's one of the productions of a particular vision of schooling in Latin America that I think the show helps us think through. So what, I mean, walk me through that. What what do you actually learn about, say, Latin American schooling by thinking through that metaphor presented in this TV show? Well, I, I think that um, in schooling scenes in the U.S., 
those tend to reinforce the meritocratic ideal of if you work hard enough, if you can overcome anything, right? If you're smart and you have a work ethic, you can go far in life. This show's lessons are not so clear. I think like the context in many Latin American cities in which this show was shown, people are not such strong believers of meritocracy. They're not convinced that if you work hard and you're talented through school, you're going to go far in life. And you look at El Chavo, who is a, a very poor boy uh, from Mexico, and no matter how hard he tries, he's, he's stuck, right? In some ways, while in other ways, he's loved, he loves, he loves to learn, he loves to have fun, he seems to be having a good time. Um, but the idea that what is it that we're here for, that is a question that's always been asked. And I think that's a question that in many places in Latin America, people still ask, why are we in school? It's not a given that if you go to school, you're going to have a better life. It's interesting that, uh, I mean, so on the one hand, there is this regional component about thinking about, you know, what you said earlier, what is Latin American, what is Latin Americanness and schooling, um, and trying to read and understand those kind of more abstract ideas through this TV show. Um, but at the same time, th this TV show was being broadcast in national contexts, right? And it was traveling kind of across nations in Latin America. Um, and do you know, I mean, is there any sort of, um, insight that you've got from uh, putting this book together that shows some of these different meanings, uh, how they emerged in these different national contexts and how some of these me meanings might have actually differed within this region of Latin America? Well, I think one of the things that I found really interesting in the process of doing this work was to find out that the place where the child was most resisted is at home, is in Mexico. Because partly because El Chavo and the character, the, the sorry, the director actor that created him, Chespirito, Chespirito was so tied to Televisa, who is this multimedia corporation who is had strong ties to the ruling party in Mexico, to the PRI that ruled Mexico for over seventy years, that I think people and especially critical scholars are very aware of the ways in which this show and its popularity was used to cover up other things that were going on, and how Televisa mobilized the show to, to create a popular, populist um, entertainment that was not providing the space to have other kinds of conversation that were political in nature and needed to happen. Now, when that show travels, that context does not travel with it, right? So Televisa doesn't mean anything in Venezuela or in Argentina or in Chile or in Puerto Rico in the 70s or 80s, right? So the way in which this show is received is, is different. It's translated differently, even though the language is the same, except in Brazil where it's dubbed into Portuguese, what the show, the, sh the meanings of the show change as it's located in different places. Um, there was one chapter that I'm sorry to, that we, we weren't able to publish because the, the author could not, because of the crisis in the country, could not finish it in Chile, where he was writing about the ways in which when the actors traveled to Chile, Pinochet's dictatorship organized a whole parade around them. And that the way in which the parade could be read, both as celebrating a particular kind of childhood and internationalism and also Latin Americanness, but at the same time, 
it had some of the more complicated and nuanced conflicts that happening in the middle of a brutal dictatorship. So in in Mexico, I understand the the connection between this um, the television corporation and the, the ruling party, the PRI, and this TV show. You said that it was sometimes it covered up things that were going on. Do you, do you have an example of that? Like what sort of things was the TV show covering up? Um, from what... So the chapter, especially by Ernesto Trevino Ronson, he speaks very clearly about the way in which this this show was used in particular schedules and was used to sort of give a narrative of if we all get along, then all the inequalities, all the injustices, all the the sad aspects of our lives, right, can be overcome because the main goal here is that we are all one. We are all friends. We all want to get along. So that message of a harmonious society of solving deep economic issues by just getting along is a message that was deployed at specific times very skillfully by Televisa and by the ways in which Chespirito allied himself with specific uh, political actors in order to become more and more popular. Do children still watch the show today? So, yes, um, children do actually still watch it. But the show, it's important to remember that the show itself is no longer running. So it's not like it used to be when Danny and I, for example, were growing up when it was usually during prime time in many countries. But you can still see the show through reruns or there's a popular cartoon spinoff. You can see it on cable or Internet. But we we don't have the exact numbers or figures, uh, but from personal anecdotes and in my own experiences in Venezuela, for example, I I do think children today are still very familiar with the show. Um, But I don't necessarily think it's the show that, you know, it's not the same experience as we had when we were growing up. Right. Like, and I know it's still playing in, in Chicago, for example. <laughs> I know in Chicago, in some of the Latin American channel, Latino channels, uh, it's still playing. I also just want to mention that when I was sort of contemplating the idea of editing this book, one of the things that pushed me to it is as I was walking into my building, I saw the doorman of my apartment building, who is from Puerto Rico, watching El Chavo on his cell phone and laughing hysterically. And that pointed to me, there's something here that we need to talk about. And so, I mean, do you think the show, so people that are watching it today, I mean, do you think the show translates into the contemporary moment or does it feel dated? Well, I think it depends on which show. If you're doing the cartoon spinoff, I don't think it definitely, it doesn't feel dated. But I would think that if they're watching the the original show, I do think there is kind of a notion or an idea that, oh, this comes from the the past, from a different time, just because of the costuming, the staging, some of the phrases that they use, it, it does give, it could give that impression that it's not from the current times, obviously. But I think some of the messages that in the show can still very much apply or resonate with children that watch it today, especially the comedy. I also think that the the writers were very skillful in avoiding any specific references to context, right? So there are some very few mentions of the World Cup here and there uh, of 86, for example, but mm-hmm. there, 
they they do not talk about local issues. They do not talk about what's happening in Mexico at that time. They don't mention any names of politicians. So in a way, that is what allowed it to travel. That's what allowed it for any different set of audiences to appropriate the show and to make of it what they wanted to make out of it. So this this edited collection that you put together is the first in a, a new series called New Directions in Comparative and International Education, put out by Bloomsbury. Um, and I just want to ask you, this sort of uh, work that you've been doing, this edited collection, how is it a new direction of comparative and international education? I think that's a really good question. Well, um, so the, the series that I am co-editing with Irv Epstein and Steve Carney we are trying to look for underexplored areas in the field of comparative international education, especially theoretically. And I think the volume that Eric and I co-edited, we were looking for people doing different kind of work. So one of the things we wanted to do is translate into English Latin American scholars and give them a space to speak to an audience where they're usually not heard. But not only because they're Latin America, but because they also bring with them theoretical frameworks and approaches that are not the most popular or the most used in the field of comparative international education. For instance, Erika herself, her chapter, who I think is brilliant, brings in affect theory. So how much have we explored of affect theory and affect, affective turn within comparative international education? I think not much. And I think the series is trying to do that. It's trying to bring different theoretical, epistemological perspectives to the field to get it out of a somewhat stuck position within the usual frameworks that it tends to use. And I think there's also, there tends to be in in any work of analysis, trying to figure out, as Danny already mentioned, what something means. And what we wanted to really avoid is doing that same thing, is trying to figure out, so what might El Chavo mean to somebody from uh, this part of Latin America versus another part of Latin America? And we used a lot of concepts from uh, Deleuze and Guattari. And one of the things that we tried to do is we really wanted to figure out how is it that the show is working? And I think that's a different question. When you ask how something works, versus what something means that invites different, you know, methodologies, different epistemologies and ontologies. So that's really, I think, the spirit of this, the new, the new series that's coming out with Bloomsbury. So are you saying in a sense that a lot of research in comparative education looks at how, what is the meaning of something and not how something works? It could. Well, you know, you're um, especially in cultural studies, which one, one would say one could say that this this is an example of, uh, you know, a cultural product. And when we study a cultural product, we tend to look at what it means or what it might mean. Uh, and so one of the things we wanted to do is move away from that. Yeah. And, and also move away from the idea of comparison in a traditional sense in which, OK, we have a stable object and we look at it from this perspective compared to this other perspective or this location compared to this other location. El Chavo, because of the way in which it traveled, uh, it illustrates the mobility of both ways of seeing, ways of sensing, um, but also the, the very um, re- process of reappropriation of this that is not that anymore, right? So as it moves, it's not the same thing anymore. And in a sense, it's, it's impossible to capture what El Chavo is. It's not one thing, but it also 
gets um, as it travels and as different people and different generations um, rediscover it. And that's, as I was saying before, right at the, at the beginning of this interview, it's not the same Chavo as I was watching when I was a kid, the one that I'm watching now with my kid. It's not only that I changed, but the ways of looking changed. So the thing itself changed. And I think that's something that is a different approach to um, a more traditional perspective that tries to seek an objective understanding of a stable object out there. It's really refreshing to, to see this in the, the, the field of comparative and international education. I also always, um, you know, the, the theories of Deleuze, for instance, you know, the, I think those were translated into English in the 1990s, right? So right. almost 30 years ago, and it's like comparative education is like just now really taking them on. I always find that, you know, it's like, why is comparative education so slow to the kind of bleeding edge of theory? Yeah, it's, I think it's it's not a question that's easy to answer. I think part of it is sort of the more pragmatist wing within comparative ed that is trying to assess programs, trying to implement programs to solve concrete issues in the field. And many people see that as completely unrelated to how we see those issues, right? So how we understand an issue, how do we understand the fact that it becomes an issue? So... I think that these different theoretical understandings and lenses and kinds of questions lead us to a different field. Uh, so I think that people might read this book and might not even identify it as part of the comparative international education field. Um, and I think that's where Deleuze and Watari's um, words come to life for us, which is we're trying to invent something new. We're trying to invent a new concept. We're trying to invent a new vocabulary to describe things and to to discuss things that for us are relevant. And also experiment, not only invent, but most importantly, experiment with, with what could be, what are the possibilities that, that could be out there um, is really important as well. Well, Danny Friedrich and Erica Komenaris, thank you so much for joining Freshet. It really was a pleasure to talk today. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Will. Danny Friedrich is an associate professor of curriculum at Teachers College, Columbia University, where Erica Komenaris is a doctoral candidate in the curriculum and teaching department. Their new edited collection is entitled Resonances of El Chavo de Ocha in Latin American Childhood, Schooling, and Societies. Please note that opinions expressed on Fresh Ed are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed. If you've liked what you've heard today, please rate us on iTunes. It really does help. Please consider becoming a member of Fresh Ed by visiting freshedpodcast.com slash support. Fresh Ed's producers are Sherry Yang, Yuval Devere, and Hong Zung. Aggie Hu is Fresh Ed's social media coordinator, and original music for Fresh Ed was created by Digital Primate. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and I'll see you next week.